This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And on this Friday show, we're going to go into a wide ranging of topics. We've got Oregon basketball, the Crystal Duarte news, the fallout from that. We've got women's basketball previewing senior weekend for the Ducks, as well as a goodbye to Satu Sabali. And then the NFL Combine is going on as well with multiple players from Oregon, Justin Herbert, Juwan Johnson, a bunch of offensive linemen, Troy Dye, all going through various aspects of that week. So we'll go through what we've seen so far from the NFL Combine. But but first, to the show, I want to remind fans out there, you can get a VIP membership for as low as $1 for your first month, and then after that it goes to $9.95. Inside scoop on the Ducks, expert analysis, Read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network. And then on top of that, when you go to your regular priced monthly bill of $9.95, or if you just sign up for an annual membership, you can get this right away, CBS All Access comes with it for free as an add-on. That's a $99 value. Uh, You get 10,000 shows, live sports, movies, on demand, all of it commercial-free through the CBS All Access streaming app. Start with... I think we need to discuss Chris Duarte and the injury. Um, we had been tracking this throughout Thursday morning into the afternoon before the game. And there, to be honest with me, for like, for me, there, there was some internal debate. Do I run with it? I, I feel pretty confident, but I couldn't quite nail down the length of Duarte's injury of timeline of when he'll be back. And I think, the concerning thing here is, and if you haven't heard the news, Chris Duarte had a procedure on his injured finger, which he injured uh, prior to the Civil War game up in Corvallis back on February 8th. So about a month ago, he suffered some kind of an injury to his pinky finger on his shooting hand, and he's tried to play through it. He's not shot the ball even close to the level that he was prior to the injury, I felt like at the Arizona game, there were multiple instances where his dribbling was impacted because of the injury, uh, and he he had the ball turn over. Uh, and they elected this week to have some kind of surgery on the finger. And I, I think the concerning thing here is, is I asked an Oregon spokesman, and we also asked Dana Altman kind of like, what's what's the timeline here? Like, do you expect him back in a week? Do you, you know, when can we expect to see Chris Duarte? And no one has an answer. That is why I didn't run the story before the news got out, literally minutes before the game started um, against the Beavers, because I want to know when. I wanted to know how long he was out and couldn't figure that out. And it doesn't sound like really anyone at Oregon knows either of when Chris Duarte could potentially be back for the Ducks. 
And that's absolutely terrible news. I mean, if you followed this team at all this season, you know he's probably the, the, the second most valuable player on the team behind Peyton Pritchard, maybe third if you think Will Richardson's contributions, especially of late. Um, but you think back to when Duarte was really figuring things out and finding that groove. Remember that weekend when they played the L.A. schools at home? I mean, he was the Pac-12 player of the week, and for a good reason. He was – I mean, at that point, you're kind of like, here's Peyton Pritchard's, uh, you know, the, the Robin to his Batman. Here's 1B to his 1A. Uh, he was playing at that level where he was able to score and got out in transition so much, and obviously all the steals he was accumulating. And something has clearly gotten wrong, and, and, and we pointed to this a couple times with, you know, since that Oregon State game where you started hearing some rumblings about maybe something was wrong and, and his play suffered. And, you know, if he's out for, let's I don't know if you want to say it, but maybe he's not going to play again this season. If that's the case, Oregon is, uh, boy, that would be a tough pill to swallow. Obviously, you're, you're pleased with what they did on, and we'll talk more about this on the show, what they did on Thursday against Oregon State, you know, right as the news is breaking. But um, if this is a long-term thing and Oregon gets into not just through the Pac-12 tournament, but maybe into the NCAA tournament without him, um, they're going to have to make some significant changes, and, and it's just going to make that the players, especially Peyton Pritchard, have to play at a different level and just have to you know, step their games up. Uh, this would be a significant injury. And, again, um, we've talked about how the field's pretty open in the NCAA tournament. It's kind of anyone's year. There's not really one dominant team. Oregon has always, and I think you've even felt this earlier this week on the podcast, like if they put it together, they could be a fi- Final Four caliber ball club. Yeah. I think if Crystal Arte's off that team, uh, or is not available, or, or in, available in a limited role, Matt, you can probably speak more to this than I can, but uh, a Final Four feels like, at least, it kind of goes out the window, right? Yeah, it becomes significantly harder for Oregon, and, and this is going to put a ton of pressure on Peyton Pritchard to basically go into every game knowing he cannot have an, an off night. And Oregon was almost already at that point, but... Yeah. Now it's it's definitive. Like if Oregon's going to win any game that they play the rest of the season, they're basically going to know that that Pritchard needs to have a, have an A plus game. Doesn't mean he needs to score twenty points a night. I mean he he could he could have eight points, but if if he attributes you know nine or ten assists and three or four steals and he rebounds at a high level and just makes you know winning plays, that's a that's a good game for him. He doesn't need to score twenty every single night if four other guys step up in his place and, and make up that production. But he has to have an A plus game the rest of the way. Uh after the game was over, Anthony Mathis, Francis Socorro spoke with the team and both those guys said that it Duarte's impact is going to be felt defensively with his rebounding uh, he's the second leading rebounder on the team at 5.6 rebounds per game. And then Mathis straight up said, I'm not worried about our scoring. Like we're so deep. We can make that up. It's the defense. And he pointed out how Duarte leads the team in steals at 1.7. Now he's literally one tenth more than what Peyton Pritchard has of 1.6. But I, I think Duarte is a guy that got a, a ton of deflections on the trap and on the presses that they do. He's really good at coming from behind and poking it loose on that. That's going to be, I mean, that's going to be an issue for Oregon, uh, replacing that production there. Now, in the Civil War game, um, the Ducks walked away with a victory 69 to 54, a game in which this was kind of close most of the first half. And then in the final four or so minutes, Oregon kind of caught fire a little bit. They made their final four baskets of the game, including two three pointers from, from Anthony Mathis. And then they got an alley-oop dunk 
from Pritchard to Lawson, and then Pritchard sank a floater in the key with like three seconds to go before half to send Oregon into halftime up 29-25, and then they just blew them out in the second half. I mean, they, they had like a 22-7 to run to open the half. Uh, Oregon was by far the better team. They win 69-54, to and it, it was a game in which we saw Pritchard play well. He had 23 points, three assists, three rebounds, two steals. Uh, he shot nine of 18 from the field, not five of nine from three, but it's what everyone else did. Anthony Mathis was critical in the first half. He scored 11 of his 13 points. He made three three pointers in this game. In the second half, Will Richardson exploded for 15 points and he had a, a really good game of 15, four and, uh, 15 points and four rebounds. And then I know Shakur Juice only played 23 minutes and I know his, his stat sheet says just five points, three rebounds, two assists, one steal, but that's a lot of the little, little things. He did a lot of the little, of the dirty work that doesn't necessarily show up in the box score for, for a team. And then I felt like, you know, they, they got some solid production from Okoro. He had, he had three points. He had a block shot. He had a steal. He had six rebounds. Brought a lot of physicality to the team. Addison Patterson played in 13 minutes and, you know, did kind of Addison Patterson things. Four points, three <laughs> yeah. assists, and one rebound and, uh, played physical basketball. They get called for some fouls, but nonetheless, Addison Patterson things. And now the big one here is, and Fali Dante returned to the court. He played five minutes. He had two rebounds. He had an assist. He didn't score. He missed both of his shots that he took from the field. And Altman said that he was only going to play him five minutes just because he literally had not practiced uh, much at all the last week or so. And that the next week, they they won't practice on Friday. They won't practice on Saturday. But they'll they'll begin prepping for, for California uh, Sunday night. He said the next week is going to be huge for him, trying to get him in, into the rotation and practice and uh, more opportunities. But you could just see maybe the impact Dante could have for Oregon because he hadn't played in like four or five weeks, six weeks for Oregon, and instantly he gets the ball down low and the entire defense just suffocates him, tries to double-team him, not let him get any kind of a clear look. He had a really nice dump-off pass for a score. Um, he uh, he took a charge. I saw him dive for a loose ball, which was pretty impressive. Um, it, it's a very small sample size, but if Dante can give kind of the production that he gave to Oregon and gets the attention that he got when he got the ball down low and can do that over a 15-minute stretch of, of basketball, Oregon, Oregon could be a different team. I'm just sitting here trying to think about what to make of not just Oregon, but what the Pac-12 did last night. Obviously, the Duarte news for Oregon is huge, but you look around the league, and Cal upsets Colorado, and that is truly, really significant. And then the bigger one is UCLA beats Arizona State on a buzzer beater, basically a buzzer beater, um, three-point shot, and you suddenly look up at the standings, and and Oregon here, despite not having arguably their second-best player, is tied for first with UCLA of all teams (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> of all teams, I mean, you, you think about that game at Matthew Knight Arena, that was the most lopsided win of the season, I think, for Oregon, at least in Pac-12 play, and, and to see what the Bruins have done. But Oregon, UCLA, both at 11-5, and five. Arizona State now half a game back at 10-5, and five. Colorado 10-6. and six. You have Arizona, we should say, also lost to USC, which helps matters. I mean, it is so wide open right now, but everything kind of broke Oregon's way. And you have a story up on the site that kind of talks about the remaining schedules and, and how all of this could play out. 
is it as simple for Oregon that if they were to beat Cal and Stanford next week, and we should mention Cal's kind of playing better than we thought they would. They're 6-9 and nine now. They've beaten a couple of decent teams recently. But is it simple enough that if Oregon were to win out from here, you think they would have the top seed in the Pac-12 tournament, Matt? Yeah. We were, we were work, working the numbers. Now, granted, this is a bunch of journalists uh, doing math, but <laughs> we could be wrong. But I, I, me and everyone else that was in the media room basically – uh, last night after the win was over and after we found the result of Arizona State, UCLA, we're doing the numbers and we can't come up, we couldn't come up with a scenario in which Oregon wins out and doesn't get first place in the Pac-12, uh, standings and gets the number one C. Like there, there's, there's not a scenario out there where they, they don't get that. Now they could certainly be co-champions. If, if right. Oregon and UCLA and Arizona State all went yeah. out, um, all three of those teams are going to be co-champions in the Pac-12. Now, there's some tough games to, to go for both of those teams. I mean, I know Oregon State, I, mean, I know Oregon has to play Cal, who's playing better, and you know just recently knocked off Colorado, but that's a home game. Oregon should be double-digit favorite. They also play Stanford, who has beaten Oregon and could be a tougher matchup for Oregon. But they should win that game, and it, it shouldn't be a, a, a game that's viewed as an extremely high, difficult game. Arizona State and UCLA still have difficult games to play. UCLA has to play Arizona on Saturday night. Arizona State has to play USC Saturday afternoon. Both of those teams could easily lose. And then if that was the case, Oregon would basically emerge out of this weekend with a one-game lead in the conference standings and an understanding that they need to win one of two in the Pac-12 final week of the season to clinch a share of the Pac-12 championship, and a sweep would guarantee them the conference championship by themselves. But to answer your question, for the seeding purposes – Oregon that just needs to win out. They went out and they get the they get the number one seed in the NCAA, in the Pac-12 tournament. Now, John Wilner of the Mercury News tweeted at me last night and he brought up a good point of it. The, the championship may not be the what you're playing for. You may be playing for for seeding positioning and the best matchup, and that might not come with being mm-hmm. the number one seed for any particular team. Like let's say Colorado and Arizona end up being the five and four seeds in the the Pac-12 tournament. I think those are maybe the two toughest matchups Oregon has in the Pac-12 this season. I mean, we certainly know Arizona. I mean, they've won two games in overtime by one point, uh, both times. And if Arizona's the five or the four seed, and Tucson, Arizona's fan base always goes and turns – the T-Mobile Arena into uh, Tucson North or McHale North is what they like to call it. Yeah, uh, that that's almost like another home game for Arizona, and to that be your semifinal game, that's pretty tough. Whereas the two seed UCLA, they could be playing uh, an Arizona State team, who yes, the Oregon has lost to ASU, but I think they are a much more favorable matchup to what Oregon's roster is than playing a Colorado or an Arizona. So. Um, there's a ton of moving parts for the one seed, and there's all those moving parts uh, to the power of five, <laughs> feels like, for seeds two, three, four, and five. 
it just feels so perfect to me that on a day where Oregon arguably loses its second best player that they kind of move into the front runner status in the conference race um, because that's just so Pac-12 right now. Um, let's just really quickly now that we let's let's just move on here with the Duarte news. We talked a little bit about what Oregon needs to do to kind of move forward and be successful offensively. It seems like, like you said earlier, that maybe they can make up with it. We saw what they did from the three-point line. They made 11 threes against Oregon State. And we should mention, I was looking at this, the last three of the last four games, they've made more than 10 three-point shots. They made 12 against Utah, and they made 10 against Arizona. They've been shooting the ball really well from three-point range of late. But what what is the big impact of losing a Duarte in terms of trying to win a conference tournament? And, and, and kind of do you, do you look at this and go, okay, maybe they could win the regular season that's kind of favorable with Cal and Stanford at home. But if they have to play some of these tougher matchups, not having a Duarte against maybe an Arizona, even if that's in the semis or if that's in the finals, or whoever it might be, how do you kind of, I guess, gauge the team's ability to compete with the top teams in this conference on a neutral court in Vegas next Well, week? Oregon's done it already the last couple of weeks from an offensive standpoint. Like, mm-hmm. like Duarte is not – he wasn't playing – he was a shell of himself in terms of production. Um, it sounds harsh, but that's just the reality. He, yes, he, he basically could score layups. Um, his, his jump shooting per- percentage has just drastically dropped since the injury had happened. So offensively, I think they've kind of already adapted to, to what it was like without Duarte. Um, defensively, it's where it's going to happen. And can you make up his impact there with Mathis getting more minutes with Richardson and Pritchard. Ha- I mean, Pritchard already plays almost 40 minutes, so he, he can't play anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Richardson's probably going to have to be in that level where he's playing probably 36, 37 minutes a game. Can he sustain that? And then Mathis, he's probably going to be a 30-minute-a-game guy now. Can he up the defensive production for you? And then Patterson's going to have to – Patterson was a guy of – Hey, we're going to play you. We're going to test you out each game. See what, you know, if you're clicking, you're going to play 20 minutes a night. If you're not, we've got the depth and, and you'll probably play five to, to eight to 12 minutes a game. Now it's a case of, Hey, we can't just test you. We, we need, we need you to be able to play 20, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes a game for, for us to be successful. Um, Patterson's going to have a chance to have a huge role on this team as long as Duarte's out. And I think it also, you know, a guy like CJ Walker, he's going to have to play a little bit more and on the wing too. Can he be ready for that? And Shakur Justin might have to play a little bit more on the wing. Oregon, yeah, against Oregon State, Oregon had a lot of lineups where it was like Lawson, Justin, Patterson, and then they had a combination of Pritchard, Richardson, and Mathis out there. Or it was, they had Dante and Walker and Patterson, or they had uh, Walker, Justin, and, and Lawson out there with Mathis and Pritchard. Um, I, I, I one, I know offensively, I've said that they could be okay there, but if if seems like maybe the last oh three or four weeks or so, Anthony Mathis has started to kind of find his groove again offensively. And if that's the case, and he's consistently knocking down multiple three-pointers, three-pointers three pointers per game, Oregon's offense goes to a whole other level. And it might not matter what kind of drop-off he has from Duarte because he spreads the floor so much. I mean, look at his shooting the last couple games. Against Colorado, 
he was two of four on three. Against Utah, he was three of five. ASU was just one of three. And then Arizona, he was three of five. And Oregon State, he was three of seven. First time since, uh, really quickly, if I can find it, first time since Michigan and Hawaii that Mathis in early to mid-December that Mathis had back-to-back games with three or more three-pointers in a game. Yeah. Uh, first time he's done it in Pac-12 play. And he's now had three of his last four games. He's had games where he's made three or more th- three-pointers. So maybe he's starting to find his groove again offensively. And if that's the case, Oregon's, I, I think Oregon's offense can go up a whole other level because of his three-point shooting threat. All right, let's let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. It was a very bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Pram, Eric Scopel with me as always. And we talked a little bit about the men's side, the Chris Duarte news. Now, the women, they will play tonight, Friday night, February 28th, take on the Washington State Cougars in a Friday night game, and then they have a Sunday afternoon senior day, final goodbye, but not really goodbye game. <laughs> yeah. um, That's right. For, That's what it is. Uh, against the Washington Huskies. And right now, Oregon sits 15-1 and in conference play with two games to play. They have a clinched, at worst, a share of the conference title. But they've they've been very open about this, at least on social media, they don't want to share the conference title, and they just need to win one more game, I think, right, to, to clinch it outright? Yeah, if they beat Washington or Washington State this weekend, or if Stanford um, were to lose at home, or sorry, I should say on the road to the Arizona schools, and it's possible they do that. Um, I'm not sure if Ari McDonald's playing. She's been out for a couple games for the Wildcats, but if she's healthy... Um, the Wildcats at home certainly capable of competing with Stanford. But, yeah, regardless, if Oregon wins one of its two games at home, it, it is over. And I think it's pretty pretty safe to say that's going to happen. Um, you know, it was funny this week at media this week. Uh, I don't know if there were more than one or two questions the whole week or you know, the whole day about Washington or Washington State. And that's not to be totally dismissive of those teams. But they're a combined 9-23 and in Pac-12 play this year. These are not particularly competitive uh, teams in this conference, and so the majority of the conference, uh, the questions focused around kind of the senior day festivities, the fact that you've got Sabrina, Ruthie, Satsu, Minyan, th- you know, four extremely accomplished players. Three of those players are, are all-time greats at Oregon, all kind of finishing up their career at the same time. I mean, that's really what the story of this weekend is about. You know, I, I you know this sounds arrogant to a certain level, but it's kind of the truth. It's like basketball this weekend is almost a little bit secondary, at least the outcome. I mean, those outcomes of those games are pretty – we should say Oregon hasn't played Washington or Washington State this season. Maybe matchups will be favorable for one of those teams, and the game's more competitive than we expect. But I think going into these games, you, you kind of get the sense that Oregon has been absolutely obliterating Pac-12 teams at home, regardless of if it's a Stanford or if it's an Arizona, Arizona State, some of these top teams in the conference, or if it's a Cal, Colorado, Utah – other teams that are near the bottom of the standings, 
there should be no reason that Washington and Washington State's are very competitive. Those are very competitive games, and I think this is more going to be just a celebration, a kind of a festive event to celebrate these players. And you, you said it right in terms of like it's a pseudo kind of like final games because they are going to host two games in the NCAA tournament in a couple of weeks here as well. But certainly going to be a significant weekend. I think a fun weekend to kind of remember the careers of, of really some of the great programs and program, or sorry, the great players in program history. And uh, it, it, this type of stuff, you know, I don't think you can overlook how significant a senior day that sends off Sabrina Ionescu is and a Ruthie Hebert and a Satu Sabali. And we've been posting uh, stories on the site all week about kind of these out, this outgoing group of talent and, and how significant it is for the program and kind of remembering what this has meant for this program because this is significant and special. This is not something that happens every year. Um, you know, you certainly have – Seniors, most classes in men's and women's basketball, football that are, are important players, but it's really unusual that you send off a player of Sabrina's caliber and then also send off players of, of Ruthie and Satsu's caliber. Those are probably three of the top five players in program history. I know I was making the argument in a story I wrote on, on Thursday that I think you could make a very strong argument that Sabrina and Ruthie are, are one and two all time in terms of accomplishments in program history, and that's where they stand right now. Yeah, you wrote a, a feature on... Um Ruthie Hebert and, and her senior day, and I don't want you to just basically give the entire gist of it away because it's a really good in-depth piece on yeah. just the importance of Ruthie and just kind of her time at Oregon. But she is kind of I, – I, she is a superstar, no doubt about it, and she will be a top five WNBA draft pick, no doubt about it. But I think we would look at her in a different prism – as crazy as that sounds, if it wasn't for Sabrina Unescu being at Oregon, like it, it would be Ruthie being the best player to ever play for the University of Oregon if it wasn't Sabrina Unescu, right? Yeah, and, and Kelly Graves said if somehow, if somehow Sabrina wasn't here, and we both agreed we didn't want to think about those scenarios because that <laughs> would totally change history and that would be uh, for the worse. But that Ruthie could be like a three thousand point career player. Uh, you know, she scored, she's right now just past Allison Lang for number two on Oregon's all-time scoring list. It's, again, it's super fitting that Sabrina and Ruthie go out uh, one and two in scoring in program history. She scores, she's, Ruthie will finish her career about 2,400, maybe, maybe 23 and a half hundred points uh, at Oregon, which is not something to sneeze at. It's going to be second all-time. But if she would have been the focal point of an Oregon offense where she was the best player for three or four years, yeah, you'd be looking up and she'd have probably 3,000 points. Um, and she'd probably be close to leading the program and rebounds. She'd certainly finish second uh, pretty clearly, uh, you know, I think in terms of she'd be playing a lot more minutes and it'd be a, a more focal point. I'm not sure she'd catch Jillian Aline because she has quite – she's got an incredible number of rebounds accumulated over her career. But, yeah, I mean, this is a silent superstar. And I asked her, you know, straight up, like, if you could – would you want to switch shoes with – or switch sneakers with Sabrina for just a couple of days to feel kind of that limelight and be in the spotlight nationally? And she was like, no, I like being kind of where I am. I, I like kind of being – I don't like the spotlight. I don't like all that attention. I, I like being able to kind of do my business and kind of keep my head down and, and have fun and not feel like, you know, everything means all that much and that there's so much attention on her. And I think that is a perfect pairing because Sabrina's going to draw that kind of attention because of who she is and how she competes and the way she produces, right? And it's, you can, you could, you're, you're going to be overlooked. You're going to be overshadowed. You know, players, people are going to focus on what Sabrina's accomplished and it would be, Maybe human nature for a certain individual in Ruthie's shoes to go, man, like, 
what about mine? Why don't I get the attention? But I think it's really a credit to her greatness and her career that she's been able to be kind of that, I called her the quiet superstar because she's comfortable just kind of being, hey, hit me with the, that, you know, hit me with a bounce pass or a chess pass. I'm going to go score the basketball. Um, and, but this doesn't have to be about me. And that's, I think, been such an important and integral part of this success is that there just doesn't seem like any of these players kind of want to step on each other's greatness. They kind of are comfortable with their roles. Um, and and that, that's kind of how it has to be. So, um, yeah, I think Ruthie gets overlooked a little bit. I think it's time to – I think Oregon fans need to appreciate what she has accomplished because, look, you're, you're going to look you're going to look up at these all-time stats and, and all of that over the next couple of months here once this season ends, and you're going to, I think, recognize that Ruthie really was one of the best players in program history, I think second to Sabrina. And, again, if you took Sabrina out of the question, we'd be talking about Ruthie, I think, as the best player in program history right now. What's been the value of the addition of Mignon Moore as a graduate transfer? I saw some debating on ESPN earlier today about just who's had the most impact nationally from a grad transfer or transfer standpoint in general. And Mignon was brought up, but I'm just curious from a local standpoint here, where would this team be without her? Because I think that kind of gets lost in the shuffle as well. That It's also her senior day as well. That's a great point. She does, she does get lost in part because you now have Satsu also being honored. And of course, she's another one of those all time greats. She'd be a top two or three draft pick in the WNBA draft. Um, it would be easy to overlook Mignon and, you know, the fact that she's only been here for one year, maybe make it easier too. But defensively, she's changed everything Oregon has done. And, and you know, Oregon is 26 and two right now, 15 one in the Pac 12. They're about to win a, a third straight outright Pac 12 championship. I don't think. I think they probably would win the conference without her. If you just had a, a Jazz Shelley or, or a Taylor Chavez playing the point, I think they'd probably still win the conference. I think Sabrina's that good, Satu's that good, Ruthie's that good, Aaron Bowley's that good with three-point shooter. They still have those pieces. But in terms of trying to make a win at a national championship, I think Mignon is so critical in terms of defending the, oppos- the opposing team's top ball handler, um, of shutting them down, of being – Again, comfortable with the role she's in. You know, you look at her, look at her career at USC. She was a 14, 15 point per game scorer there. I mean, she was she was a really good offensive player. She wasn't a great three point shooter, but she was capable of putting. You know, you give her the ball at the end of a game, and she was kind of USC's go to option. And she has that. She's now like the fourth or fifth scoring option at Oregon. And I think again, her ability to be malleable and to fit into the role that they need her to fit into and be that defensive player and to hit that open shot when when it's there for her and to. Uh, you know, if Sabrina needs a break to be the one kind of managing the offense, I mean, those are things that they've needed from her. And, and she stepped in and fit in really, really well. And, again, it takes a certain type of personality to kind of realize that this is the role I need to play. It's a totally different role than she's used to playing. She's only playing about 25 minutes a game after she was playing about 35 minutes a game at USC. Um, you're right. She deserves to be discussed. It's going to be her final Pac-12 home game um, at Matthew Knight on Sunday as well. And it's four players that are very, very critical to this program's success. And, again, we've talked about it in the past. Players that Oregon is going to miss a lot going forward. There's no doubt about it. I saw a tweet that's really interesting, and it kind of goes with, you know, her addition of she kind of just knew that, hey, I just need to be the best defensive player possible because offensively, while I'd love to score, we don't need that. I mean, just look at their stats right now. This is – Granted, through the, the entire year, basically, but they lead the country in points per game. They lead the country in assist turnover ratio. They lead the country in field goal percentage. They're second in scoring margin. They're set, they're third in assists per game. They're fourth in turnovers. They're p- taking care of the ball. 
They're sixth in the country in, in three-point field goal percentage. They're sixth in rebounding margin. They're seventh in three-point field goals made per game. And they're 15th best nationally in free throw percentage. I mean, it was pretty clear, like, hey, look, Mignon, anything we get from you offensively is golden. It's icing on the cake. We need your defensive prowess. And if you can be the, the head of the snake defensively for us, everything else on offense will just fall into place because – you can set us up defensively. And Oregon hasn't had, even as good as Maite was defensively, has not had a player, and, and Kelly Graves has said this a couple of times, who's been kind of capable of being what Mignon has been um, in terms of she's kind of just changed what they can do defensively. And he said that they, pre- they put a little bit more pressure defense in in terms of going full court, in terms of trapping in the corners. They've just been a little bit more aggressive because they know of a player capable of doing that. And that, that can be the kind of thing that, even if maybe it's a slight step back offensively from what they got out of Cazorla, who was a better three-point shooter and, and just a better probably overall offensive player, her ability to change things defensively probably maybe makes it a little bit of a net positive in terms of that transition because they are able to be a little bit more versatile defensively, a little bit more aggressive, uh, maybe take some more risks because she's so good out there. All right, we'll have full coverage after this weekend's game on the podcast for Monday going into the women's Pac-12 tournament, which will start next week. Also, we'll cover the men's final week of the season starting Monday, have a better idea of where they sit in the Pac-12 standings. Let's wrap up the show with this. The Pac-12 and Oregon in particular, from the football side of things, they are looking east right now to what's going on in the Midwest at the NFL Combine. And I don't know about you, Eric, like, I get the value of the combine. I understand and fully am okay with an understanding of why people love it. Me personally, it's a weird thing. I love watching seven on seven football. I just can't find myself geeking out over the combine. Um, But that being said, it does appear that Justin Herbert, Juwan Johnson, and a couple of the Oregon offensive linemen have – certainly turned a lot of heads. And I think probably the the primary two guys who've had the biggest impact so far is Herbert with once he got out there throwing the football and everyone seeing what he could do and Juwan Johnson with the intangibles and and the measurements uh, and then also catching the football. It seems like those two guys in particular have really upped their stock. With Herbert, I think we all knew what kind of an athlete we thought he was. And then he went out and did it. I mean, t- to be 6'6", 240 pounds and run a 4'7", actually a 4'6", 840, that was really impressive on his part. Um, that's a good time for someone his size. Uh, you know, that he could play tight end with those type of you know, yep. physical measurables. Obviously, he's got the arm strength and, and the intangibles to play quarterback at a much higher level. And then I was really impressed. You know, he, he had a 35-and-a-half-inch vertical jump. I didn't see that one coming. And, of course, you don't really – that's sort of one of those – the stats that doesn't really have any value because I don't think he ever needs to be able to jump, you know, three feet in the air over somebody in a football game. But hey, at least he's got the, that shows what kind of an athlete he is. In fact, his vertical jump was better than most of the wide receivers who performed on uh, on Thursday at the combine. So yeah, impressed with that. Also impressed with they, they showed a bunch of clips of him throwing the football. He showed out there, and I think that's where we knew he would 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 impress because we've seen his arm strength in person a number of times watching practices at Oregon, watching pregame workouts before before games at Autzen, and that guy has an absolute cannon, and he showed that off, and I think that's going to be a thing where 
I know there are, I mean, they nitpick so much during this, this time period here on, on TV, on radio, on, on Twitter, on various platforms about this versus that versus how he answers this question versus that question. But I think if you just sit and you look at what Justin Herbert is as an athlete, which is what this combine is largely about, he has to have improved his stock in a considerable way just with the physical tools he clearly possesses. And I think Juwan Johnson, the same thing. You know, he's measured in at 6'4", 230, ran a 4'5", 8", uh, you know, a 33-inch vertical jump. I think his three-cone drill was the second or third fastest of anybody uh, for the wide receiver position group. Uh, he performed really well as well, and it'll be interesting to see what his future is. And, and, and we should mention, maybe he's somebody that ends up playing a little tight end. I mean, I think that was something I heard a couple people talk about based upon some of the numbers he put up. But uh, to be his size and to be able to run a four five eight, he certainly helps himself as well. It'll be interesting to see kind of what more of the discussion surrounding him will be over the next couple of weeks and months as we come up. Yeah, I, I think the Juwan Johnson's where he lands positionally could really dictate what he does in the NFL because he's a big dude. And I keep going back to thinking like, he could be a tight end because go back and watch the Utah game and go back and watch the Washington game and also the Wisconsin game and some of those crackback blocks that he has yeah um at the line of scrimmage like he's a physical big dude like he he could he could be a guy who maybe is your is your hybrid second tight end um <coughs> a guy that maybe doesn't start but Still plays 35, 45% of the snaps because he's a bigger tight end and, uh, a bigger receiver and, and a more athletic, versatile tight end and can be the, that threat in the passing game in that way. Maybe he finds his way that way. Um, and then from a Herbert standpoint, like I, I, I said this, I think before the combine started that we, we were going to see Herbert show up and I mean, he's a robot. He, he is going to excel in these types of things because everything is geared and designed to him. And he just, and when I say he's a robot, he like literally doesn't make mistakes. Like when it's these types of, of settings, I think he flourishes and he, he's a robot because he can literally duplicate rep after rep after rep at an A plus level. And he was going to, I think he was, I knew he was going to impress people and looking at, at the stories and the comments and the videos and all of that, he certainly has opened the eyes of a ton of guys because, I mean, he's got a howitzer of an arm and he can just sling it 50 yards down the field at ease and on the money. And I think maybe the most impressive individual from an Oregon perspective, uh, I guess performance was maybe Jake Hansen on the bench press for yeah. three reps. I mean, I, I mean, again, I, I, I've never been in Oregon's weight room watch, watching them work it out. You know, I didn't know how many reps Hansen could do, but 33—that's uh, the fourth most of any offensive lineman at this year's draft. That really surprised me. Uh, obviously, good on Jake for for being able to put up that kind of uh, the, those kind of numbers on the reps there. Uh, that will go a long way in his career, but I think that's notable um, because. So again, these these numbers here are kind of arbitrary at times, and you kind of just wonder if they mean that much. But I think strength, the bench press reps, I think those do kind of matter, and they'll stand out. And uh, I, I know you're never going to replicate that on a football field. You're not going to need to bench press a linebacker 33 times on your back. But 
at the same time, like being able to show you have that sort of strength, especially as an offensive lineman, is significant. So a good start to him. He, you know, his, his time over there. Obviously, he has more work to do um, today after we're, we're filming this uh, this podcast. But uh, I think an impressive start there for him, getting his week underway, and it'll be interesting to see how he performs in some of the other drills. Uh, we should mention, I think Calvin Throckmorton had 23 reps, so that's a little bit. It's a significant number below. It's maybe a little disappointing, and Shane Lemieux has yet to do his bench press reps, and we'll see what those numbers look like. But um, good for Jake Hansen to get off to a strong start there on the bench press. Troy Dye will be also participating over the weekend in some activities. We should note um, uh, it was reported that he played the, the final four games of the season with a torn meniscus. So the Rose Bowl, the Pac-12 championship game, the Civil War game, and also the Arizona State game. Pretty remarkable deal there. I mean, I don't know how someone does that and still continues to play at a high level, especially at his position. Yeah, and with a broken thumb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he had basically, yeah, I mean, he has a shoulder and a bad and a bad hand, basically, and he goes out there and continues to perform at such a high level, and that... That, that's again, that speaks to the warrior mentality. And those are the type of things that don't really show up. You know what yep. I mean? In one of these combines, when you're just looking at guys running and stuff like that, is, is what, what this toughness is and some of those things. Troy Dye has those in spades. And that's why, like, I, I don't know how he's going to perform. I'll be curious to see what he runs in the 40, you know, and, and in some of these other agility drills, what, maybe what he does in a bench press, you know, how many reps can he put up if he's even doing that one. Um, but, at the end of the day, like that's that's that tells you the story of Troy Dye in my mind. He might not blow you away with his combine performance, but when you put him out there in terms of being an actual football player, that's what he is, and that's why I hope there's some appreciation and understanding of that from NFL teams. Uh, you know, in, in this process of like maybe there are things that he's going to be not quite as impressive at, but if you just put on the game film and you watch the guy play and you know the guy's heart and toughness, he just is a guy that loves football, and and, that, and a story like. Like that, where he was dealing with such an injury for you know, the final third of the season, I, I think that's a, a kind of a perfect encapsulation of who he is as a football player and why I think he at least deserves a shot in the NFL uh, to have a long career because he is some of those guys that just he just loves the game. All right, that's gonna do it for us on the podcast. Next week, spring football starts, Ooh. and as crazy as that sounds, we'll have more preview, more thoughts on that going into the week. Uh, kicking off Monday's podcast with that. Uh, we've also got some recruiting news that will be trickling in the next week or so. Junior Day is setting up to be March 7th, uh, the Saturday, so Oregon is expecting a large contingent of players on campus, so we'll talk about that as well. So look for both of those things next week uh, on the podcast, and uh, if you want more information, go to duckterritory.com. We'll have more on that there as well. So for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Prem. You've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Adios, amigos.